So now uh, we are going to hear from our special guest, Lydia. Lydia is originally, is it San Francisco, Lydia, yeah. generally? Yes. And is now on staff at the, our sister church in Cambridge called The Reservoir. So please join me in welcoming Lydia. Hi, everyone. Good morning. Uh, my name is Lydia Hsu. It's really nice to be here in New York. Um, just a four-hour drive from Boston, and it's not a bad drive. And um, it's been wonderful to hang out and show my mother-in-law around the city. So thanks for having me. Um, it's great to be with you all. I'll share um, the Bible text with you all and then pray for us and get us started. Let me read the text. It comes from Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 to 29. I'll read for us. Now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subjects to a disciplinarian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized in Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ, there is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free, there is no longer male or female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abram's offering, heirs according to the promise. Let me pray for us. Loving and beautiful God, uh, we come into this place uh, this morning um, with the full week that we've had or a week in front of us uh, with our lives, with our to-do lists, with our worries, with our anxieties, with hope to see you, with desire to meet you, with some kind of hunger for a divine peace or divine energy. God, we come into this place uh, wanting to worship, but also not sure why we're here or how we got here. Maybe some of us are here uh, fully expectant for you to show up. Or maybe some of us are here not sure if you would show up. God, I pray that no matter where we are and however we come into this place this morning, that you would surprise us with a, a new light or a fresh word that you might revive our souls and give us um, your good love. Would you, would you make that possible here? And would you allow that to happen and convict us of the abundant love that you have for each and every person here, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I visited uh, Korea last year. Uh, I was born 
there in Korea, but moved to the United States when I was nine years old, and it was only my second time being back. And of course, it's a whole different place than when I used to live there. Um, so I was, you know, an American using Google Maps to navigate the Korean bus system, and I had to ask for directions. So I stopped someone and asked, 남산타워 가려면 어느 버스 타야 되나요? And the guy replied back to me, do you speak English? <laughs> Now, if you know Korean, you know that my Korean's pretty good, but I clearly have an American accent. And everyone knows that bus in Korean is not bus, it's busu. And when I moved to the United States, um, you know, I, I didn't know how to speak English at first. So I learned, but for a while I had, an I had a Korean accent when I spoke English. And, you know, people, you know, stared at me and treated me differently. And so I always had this dream that when I would go back to Korea, where everyone looked like me and I could speak Korean and not be misunderstood. It turns out I'm too Korean in America and I'm too American in Korea. Am I Korean or American? Identity is a peculiar thing. I've never totally felt at home anywhere and displaced no matter where I was. And I especially struggled uh, with that in my formative years. Throughout middle school and high school, I probably changed my identity about every year. Each grade, I made new circle of friends. Sixth grade, I embraced kind of like my shy girl style with two friends, and the three of us picked one spot during recess, and we were there at every recess. Seventh grade, I thought I needed to expand my circle, actually move up the ladder, so I joined cheer, of course, and made friends with the popular prep crowd. And then eighth grade, I got too cool for the too cool kids and decided that I would want to become like alternative rock and wore baggy pants and hung out with like skater boys. And then in ninth grade, I met these wonderful Vietnamese kids at our school that were so cool with their low rider cars and they used to call them rice rockets. Um, they would fix up Hondas with spoilers and rims and we'd go race our cars around the block during lunch hours. So I jumped around to different like groups and cliques and kind of reinvented myself every year because I didn't fit in anywhere. And it would be too cheesy of me to simply say that I found myself in God at some point, although I did after I was much older, uh, and not necessarily through a church community because churches were always somewhat complicated for me too. I didn't fit into the Korean youth group or the campus fellowship where everyone had similar political views while I was studying political science. And because actually Sunday mornings are some of the most segregated times in America, I found myself after years of trying to be this or that for others, realizing that I didn't need to try to so hard to have people understand me. They didn't. They didn't get me. I couldn't be put into categories that they knew So I came to find myself more grounded during an especially strange time when I moved to San Francisco right after college for a job. I didn't know anyone. I didn't have community or church. My job was a whirlwind. I felt alone and disconnected. And it was during those times that I began to do this thing, a thing that I always, 
always felt the pressure to do all my life, but never did it right, I had quiet times with Jesus. We used to call it QT. Bible study leaders used to keep us accountable by saying, how are your QTs going? And I never got through the designated devotional readings. um, But during this time, when I felt most alone, I spent some time in the evenings, right before bed, reading the Bible and doing this wonderful devotional called My Utmost for His Highest by Oswald Chambers. And I prayed and talked with Jesus. And I kept doing it night after night because through those times, I felt grounded after doing them. I felt connected. I felt this sense of peace, this strange source of energy that was joyful. And I was working like 70, 80 hours a week, exhausted, but I would perk up and get energized by spending time with Jesus at night. It was crazy because I always used to fall asleep when I read the Bible. It didn't matter to God whether I was speaking a different language professionally. My prayers were a mix of Korean and English and sometimes just groans and tears. I felt heard by God. I felt known by God. And I wasn't sure who I was mid-20s, you know, and who I was becoming. But I knew and started to discover this relationship as the beloved child of God. And I felt that so strongly and deeply at that, at a time when I was actually the most lost with like my job and not knowing what I wanted to do. But like Paul said in the text today, whether I was Korean or American, I am a child of God. You are all children of God. I think racial, ethnic, national identity has always been a tricky thing. The Old Testament is basically a series of stories in the process of making and breaking of a nation and their identity, the Israelites, the Jewish people. Because of their belief in God who promised this covenant relationship with the descendants of Abraham, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. Well, I'm daughter, but whatever. <laughs> but that was the promise. That's the message we heard at church. God's chosen people. And they had a special name for anyone who was not them, the Gentiles. I used to think the Gentiles meant people from the Gentile. There's no such country. It just literally means anyone who's not Jewish. The Greeks did the same thing. The Greeks and the barbarians. Anyone who's not a Greek is called barbarians. So in this text today, when Paul is saying whether you are a Jew or Greek, was actually a very provocative and a scandalous and an uncomfortable thing. Because the separation was very clear to everyone. And those who tried to blur those lines by worshiping or eating together were considered heretics. And this was what Paul was defending because his ministry was being discredited because of his stance of mixing the Jews and the Gentiles. And the thing is, the text might not, might not hit us like it did that to them then because we don't feel the danger of the words in our bodies like we would if different words were used today. Let me show a modern example of this. Uh, in a quick video. This guy named Nasir Yassin, who identifies himself as a Palestinian Israeli, posts a short video each week on various topics called Nas Daily. 
Uh, this one is on segregation. I hope this video makes you angry because it makes me angry. When I was a kid, I had zero Jewish friends. Not because I hated Jews, but because Jews don't want to live with us. And us Arabs and don't want to live with Jews. In my country, Israel, there is segregation. Arabs live in one place and Jews live in another. We don't go to school together, we don't make friends, and we rarely interact. This is segregation, and this is why I'm angry. Segregation is a problem not just in my country, but in every country. In London, one of the most diverse cities in the world is actually quite segregated. If you look at the map of London, the whites live in this part, the Muslims live in another part, and the blacks live in another part. The people are diverse, but they live separately. In the U.S., entire neighborhoods are dominated by one ethnic class. Baltimore, Washington is 60% black, and Nebraska is 88% white. This segregation is no one's fault. We humans gravitate to people that share our culture because it's easier. Then you ask, So what is the problem? The problem is that self-segregation is not just bad, it's dangerous. When Muslims live and grow up in a separate neighborhood in London, they are surrounded only by their culture. They don't need to integrate with other cultures, they don't need to mix with other people, and that's how you get a country within a country. The government will underfund you and ignore you. Society will break apart and disintegrate, and racism will grow. When we don't live together, we start hating each other, and that's why segregation is dangerous. But segregation can't be fixed. Just look at places like Singapore. They have a diverse population of Malays, Chinese, and Indians. And 81% of them live together in public housing. Out of every 100 apartments, there are about 74 Chinese families, 13 Indian families, and 13 Malay families. So it is impossible to have only 100% of any race in a public housing. This isn't just luck. This is the law. Just ask their experts. We have encouraged social meeting so that people from different racial groups stay together and understand the lifestyle of each other. Not have a stronger society because of their policy. This way, people of different races meet in the elevator, their kids hang out in the playground, and they become friends. So do you have an Indian friend? Yes, I do. Do you have a Malay friend? Yes, I do. Do you have a Chinese friend? Yes, I have many Chinese friends. Do you have an Arab friend? Um, no. You are my Arab friend. <laughs> and if it worked in Singapore, then I'm pretty sure that it can work somewhere else. In your country and in my country, governments need to do whatever it takes to encourage people of different races to live together. And if they don't do it, then we should. 
We need to encourage your kids to have friends with different cultures. We need to do whatever it takes to get people to live together. So that in the future, that Muslim kid in a village in Israel can grow up with Jewish friends. See you next week. Words like Jews, Arabs, Christians, or Muslims, black or white, straight or gay, citizens or immigrants, categories that have exposed tentacles for today. It's kind of like what it felt like for these Galatians to read this letter from Paul. This letter wasn't written in this like vacuum, but in the midst of high drama of Galatian church. And using loaded terms during that religious climate, they were fighting words. And Paul was fighting. Paul was fighting for the legitimacy of his apostleship. These teachers were coming around saying that he was an imposter. They were claiming that in order for their church to be valid, they had to follow the purity laws and follow the rules. So I think a side note thing to note here, as modern day Christians, we shouldn't assume that Paul's view of expanding the good news to Gentiles was a simply Christian doctrine and the Jewish belief system was the archaic bounded set one. We've got to remember that at this point, the gospel was still a sect of Jewish religion. Paul still very much thought of himself as a devoted Jew and he constantly reminded how zealous he was as the teacher of law, which is also why he is making this theological claim as one that ultimately meets the promise of becoming Abraham's heirs within the realm of Jewish belief. And in fact, in the early Christian history from the book of Acts that we see, show that apostle council in Jerusalem earlier agreed to the gospel of circumcision and gospel of uncircumcision that were both valid and acceptable. Meaning the Gentiles didn't have to follow all the traditional Jewish laws to be a part of the faith. It was an unraveling of an eventual split, but not yet. And nowadays, Jewish requirement to join the faith or Catholic or other church or any denomination vary all widely and are still up for debate. It's interesting how applicable Paul's call to radical unity and inclusion is, even today, maybe especially today. I mean, Paul's looking at this Galatian incident, but look at us now. Churches are still debating what belief makes you in and what makes you out. Some people have used uh, terms like bounded set or cent- versus centered set to talk about this. That's helpful. Bounded, that's about who's in and who's out. We're a centered set that Jesus is at the center and we may be all in different places. After thousands of years, we still make it about who's in and who's out. And the rules and guidelines or, you know, priorities and sets of values are important. But they are just that, guides. Paul puts it like this. So he says, now before faith came, we were in prison and guarded under the law until faith came and would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came. The word disciplinarian here is used, uh, is the same word they use for slaves who oversaw children during their formative years. They were the tutors. 
the babysitters, disciplinarian. Law was the guardrail, but now faith is here. It's like this. If the babysitter was told that bedtime was 9 p.m. and no popsicles, but now mom and dad's home. They were the ones who gave the instructions in the first place. But it came not from the correctness of sleeping at 9 p.m. because 9 p.m. is holy and because popsicles are evil. It's because the parent loves the child and wants the child to have good rest and enjoy a popsicle at a proper time in the sun at a picnic on the grass with the whole family eating popsicles together. Basic rules are helpful, but it points to the greater truth that is beyond the law. Children start with basic colors, learning red, blue, or yellow, but you grow older and see the beauty of complex colors like aquamarine or lavender blush. They can create and paint for themselves. Or grammar rules that everyone learns, but every advanced writer knows to throw out the window when they're forging their own truth words. How much more? That is how to live holy lives can be determined by a textbook of scriptures? It cannot. Paul says it's not the Torah, the book, but Jesus, the person who leads and guides us and teaches us and is for us and walks with us and loves us. He says faith has come. Faith in Jesus. And I don't mean just faith in Jesus like the formulaic words, you know, spelling out, accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Again, the intent was good, but we've made it into a formula again. It keeps the power in the system to do that. But Paul was preaching the unleashing of faith that's living out in the spirit of Jesus. Faith is not something that you just join like a rewards program that only works if you sign up for all the terms and conditions that's in the fine print that you never read, that only applies from August 1st to December 1st. And if you pay a little more, you can get platinum status. No, you've already all been approved. And credit cards try to tell you this because it's good news. And that's the magic of marketing. It looks very similar to good news, but it's not. And churches do that too. You're all welcome, unless you want to get ordained, unless you have questions, unless you think the Spirit is working in you that's different from what the Bible says. And the Bible says a lot of different things. The whole debate in the Bible and the early Christians, it was all in there. They were debating all the time. Who's in, who's out was always up for debate. Books like Ezra and Nehemiah had divorce decrees for those who married foreigners. But book of Ruth and book of Jonah, Ruth was a foreign woman that becomes on the ancestral matriarchal line of the royal line of David. And Jonah, who was a particularist, then was shown by God, God's heart for people of Nineveh that he never thought of. This is our debate today still and was and has been in the Bible In Romans, Paul again deals with this debate of whether um, who's in and who's out, particularly who eats meat or not. For some, they thought it was okay to eat meat, and some totally opposed it. And this other disciple, Peter, struggled with it as well. But his change in theology actually came not from interpreting Torah, but from a vision in his prayer, from his 
experience where he saw a sheet coming down with all kinds of unclean animals descending from heaven. His mind was changed in his prayer, in his experience with God. But this issue of eating meat was a big deal. It was a hot topic that got everybody worked up. And I mean, this happens in the modern times today too, right? I remember um, in San Francisco, I had just moved up to Los Angeles, moved up from Los Angeles, where in LA, recycling isn't really a culture in Southern California. Back then, it wasn't. And I got to a restaurant in San Francisco to a bins of trays, and they have a bin for trash, bin for recycling, and bin for compost. And I stood there with my tray, like kind of trying to place things, but in the wrong bin. And then this lady who got frustrated, like walks up in front of me from my slow moving and rearranged the trash and muttered something like, it's not that hard. (laughs) I mean... Okay, I know that climate change is important and we're killing the earth, but look, I just haven't been around such organized disposal system. Like, you don't got to be so condescending about it, you know? And Paul kind of sounds similar in Romans 14 when he talks about the meat stuff. He says, some believe in eating anything while the weak eat only vegetables. He calls them weak. I guess we know how he feels about the vegetarians. But still, he goes on to say, those who eat must not despise those who abstain and not pass judgment. But also, let them be. Why are people so concerned with where they... Oh, sorry, I skipped a line. But still, he goes on to say, those who must eat must not despise those who abstain and not pass judgment. Um, in her like latest stand-up, Ellen DeGeneres was like, talking about a similar thing. And he, she was like, vegans are such snobs, you know? But then she also says, let them be. Why are people so concerned with where they get protein? But what about the protein? I don't care where you get re- your riboflavin. <laughs> and so these are important matters to people. Purity laws, climate change, veganism. And these are things that people really should care about. They care about it and they're passionate. And Paul reminds us that even to the church today, experiencing division and over disputable matters, even though some say it's clear and not disputable, but just by the fact that people are disputing over them makes it a disputable matter. Some have called it, um, uh, some ways that we can uh, get around this, some have called it third way. Well, there's some criticism for third way sometimes. I think it's simply remembering that it's not about meat or no meat, or circumcision or no circumcision, but about faith in Jesus and unity in the spirit of community. I've heard it said, I forget where, but not about the left or the right, but from above. Not about the elephant or the donkey, but the lamb. I know we get worked up about our differences. And some matters are not just issues, but people. Not preferences, but life and death matters. 
And yes, how do we fight for what is good and what is just in the midst of division and disagreement? Holding tension and holding one another and not letting go of the other person who disagree with you. Not walking away, but making them look into your eyes as you share your conviction with them and sitting down and eating with them as you hear about their experience and life story that that brought them there. An enemy is one story you haven't heard. There is a provocative, prophetic progress that I think the only the church can show the world that no activism organization or political party can achieve because the radical power of love that church is supposed to display. They will know us by our love, Jesus says. And it's hard. Plenty of churches, as we know, and denominations have split over issues. Nations have split over ideologies or political methods, communism or democracy, like North Korea and South Korea. They're the same people, but it's complicated. Or sometimes it seems so simple, but simple, but unfortunately it's not. And apparently it's not. These are important things that we disagree on. So what are we to do with that? Are we to just steamroll people who don't get it, who are not there yet, who just don't see the light? Referring back to the video from earlier, racism and division is not just going on in America or between whites or blacks. And Singapore is an interesting social experiment in action. It's a young city-state gaining independence in 1965 after having been a British colony for centuries. It implemented innovative social methods, and they're trying it out, like their housing ownership law given to citizens, much lower market rate with the caveat that you only get it for 99 years. Or college abroad paid in full with the promise that you come back and work in Singapore for a certain amount of years. And the city runs extremely efficiently, and diversity is a very much integrated one. And you might think, well, Chinese, Malay, Indian, well, of course that's easy. They're all Asian. They all look alike. Um, you haven't seen a staunch nationalist like an old Korean man who's been through colonization that almost wiped out his country and his culture. culture. Made in Korea is everything to him. And among Asians, there's a great divide between East Asians and South Asians and Southeast Asians. And among the same kind of Asians, there's discrimination among the lighter color ones and darker color ones. There's judgment and shame for those who are overweight or maybe exactly at their weight they're supposed to be, but, you know, not according to the standards. And there's so much gossiping and disregarding of folks or people who are not educated, employed or unemployed, disabled, homeless, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, male or female. Even those categories themselves reinforce this hierarchical system because that's all we know. But do you know that before you were American or undocumented refugee, you are a beloved child of God? Or after you never graduated, or after you had kids and stopped working, Jesus walks with you still daily and works through you. 
Before you decided to follow all the rules and never go outside the lines, always helpful, never causing a ruckus, achieving the most respectable status and career, performing at the highest level at all times, God loved you just as you were and will always love you even if you don't keep it up at all costs. Whether you're wearing Louis Vuitton or Target or Ivy League graduation stole or a sign that says anything helps, You are all clothed in Christ, one who died on the cross and rose in glory to say, I love you this much. Whether we're dressed in our Sunday best or naked with nothing left, Jesus clothes us all, binds us all, unites us all. For all of you are one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are heirs, he says. Heirs according to the promise. You are heirs. Know that that is who you are. Heirs of the kingdom. Do you believe that? May we live into that inheritance more and more. Let me pray for us. Father, mother, parent, God, we are your children. We are your heirs. Would you show us that we are your children that's beloved no matter who we are or what we've done or what's been done to us. The things that we wrestle with, things that nobody knows about, things that we wouldn't want to share with the person next to us that we're worshiping together with. God, you know it all, and yet you call us your beloved. God, would you convict us of that powerful love and tell us who we are, that we are your heirs as the children of God. Would you help us to drive that deep into our hearts right now and rest of today? In Jesus' name, amen.